Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Molly Hemingway joined us last year to discuss her co-authored book on the Kavanaugh Affair, Justice on Trial, and she joins us again for a new book entitled Rigged, How the Media, Big Tech, and the Democrats Seized Our Elections. Welcome, Molly. It's great to be here with you. Thank you for having me. Uh, you, You open with something people forget. How did Democrats respond to the 2000? 2004, and the 2016 elections. Yeah, the last time Democrats fully accepted a presidential election that they lost was 1988. Uh, and ever since then, they've had trouble accepting election results that they've lost. Sometimes they claim that voting machines have been hacked. That was actually a major theme in 2004. Uh, in 2000, they said that President George W. Bush was selected, not elected, because of the role the Supreme Court played. And they have generally taken that approach. Of course, nothing compares to what happened in 2016 when they claimed that Donald Trump was a Russian agent who had stolen the election by colluding with Russia. And that was not a fringe theory. That was what they all believed and said repeatedly a dozen times a day for years, not just um, Democrats, but the entire media complex, even some Republicans. It was this massive conspiracy theory that had no basis, in fact. And if we go back a little further, the media in 2000 and 2004, and I remember people talking about, especially in Ohio, the, the stealing of votes uh, taking place in 2004 for Bush. Uh, the media treated those claims pretty sympathetically. Yeah, perhaps too respectfully. They, <laughs> this has been a common theory by people that, I mean, and, and it is true that, uh, that election voting machines can be vulnerable. Uh, but in 2004, Democrats responded by challenging the election results on, you know, in Congress, including a senator standing up against them. They came up with a an Emmy-nominated documentary called Hacking Democracy. Uh, they hold hearings as recently as just a couple of years ago. Senator Kamala Harris was one of the Democrats alleging that uh, voting machines could not be trusted because they're too easily hacked and because we know that foreign entities you know, would like to play a role in our elections. And yeah, the media have never portrayed those. Oh, in fact, the media themselves have made these claims up to like early November 2020, I think it was PBS put out a thing about how Georgia's voting machines were suspect and how they were too easily hacked. In the June primary in Georgia in 2020, 
the New York Times and Politico, they sounded like Sidney Powell or Lynn Wood, the way they were talking about the vulnerability of voting machines. And so it was really interesting to me how on a dime they turned to saying such discussions were verboten the moment their preferred candidate won. One of the points of the book, apart from the copious uh, research and evidence gathering that you do, I sense a, uh, a rhetorical purpose as well, uh, because we now have claims of shenanigans in the 2020 election, to which you say to the people, you're not wrong, quote, unquote, and you're not crazy either, is a big part of this book sort of a, a kind of, you know, reassurance that you may have some legitimacy here. There may be some validity to what you're saying. Don't let them discount what you're saying from the start before they even listen to what you have to say. Yeah, I had actually thought the election had a rigged feeling to it prior to the election. I wrote about it in October, I believe, um, because of the heavy hand that corporate media and big tech were were playing in things that they were they'd moved from mere bias into outright propaganda. They were putting out demonstrably ludicrous polls. Like my favorite poll was the one that said that Wisconsin was going to go for Biden by 17 points. That was a poll the week of the election. That's obviously not true. Why are they putting out fake polls like that? Um, the way that they suppressed stories or invented stories, the way big tech altered their algorithms to de-emphasize de conservative voices and to elevate left-wing voices, to de-platform effective conservative voices, to censor stories. To me, that was such a rigging of what people were allowed to even talk about and think about that it was serious. But as far as after the election, when people started talking about how weird everything seemed, I just didn't like the way the media were responding to those concerns. They said, you, you're not allowed to talk about it. And so I just wanted to investigate it and report. That's how I kind of figure out what I think about things. I report, I interview, I investigate. And I was actually almost impressed that people figured out instinctively that something was wrong because it took a while to figure out exactly what they did and how they did it. Uh, and that's what I hope the book can do is show what actually happened based on rigorous reporting and research. And you cite other authorities as well. For example, you go back to a Caltech MIT voting technology project from 2001 and also this Federal Commission on Voting that's from 2005, headed by President Jimmy Carter. Uh, what did those two hardly conservative formations say about absentee voting? Yeah, they said something that is common knowledge and was not really up for debate up until 2020, which is that absentee balloting and mail-in mail balloting are ripe for fraud. They are the means by which fraud is most easily accomplished. It is a sad thing about human nature that people sometimes lie or cheat or steal. And our voting system developed over time to limit the role that those could play in the outcome of an election. Mail-in balloting opens back up all sorts of things, whether it's moving away from a secret ballot to just having lower control over ballots. And there's a reason why France outlawed mail-in balloting in the 1970s or why the New York Times and Washington Post used to openly admit 
that mail-in balloting was ripe for fraud or that Jimmy Carter, when he ran that voting commission, acknowledged that mail-in balloting is the most ripe for fraud. It has another problem, though, which is it also makes it more difficult to catch fraud. You can catch in-person fraud much more easily than when it's shrouded through mail-in balloting. You know, I, I we, we both live in Virginia. Did you, you know, about a month before the 2020 election, I got something in the mail saying, hey, do mail-in voting, mail-in balloting. And it, and it came from the state. It didn't even come from the Democratic Party. The state was apparently, I mean, I didn't, I didn't need an absentee ballot. I, I walked three blocks to the voting booth and, and cast my vote. Uh, did they send, I don't think you went into this in, in the book, but did the state of Virginia send letters out to everyone in the state, or at least everyone on the voting rolls, hey, you can vote by absentee balloting. You're actually encouraging people to do this. Has this ever been done before? I'm not sure if you're right that it was sent by the state. And what I mean by that is one of the things, and the Washington Post even reported on this, left-wing activist groups were, in, were sending out information about mail-in balloting designed to make it appear as if it was coming from a county or state election official when, in fact, it was being sent by these left-wing groups. And that's a huge thing I get into in the book is how um, an army of left-wing activists embedded into the election system um, so that these groups, and I'm not sure, I'm not sure how much it happened in Virginia, although it definitely happened in many states that I get into. Mark Zuckerberg, one of the world's wealthiest and most powerful men, privately funded the takeover, the private takeover of government election offices. They figured out that Republicans tend to vote in person and Democrats have basically no problem with mail-in balloting. And so they decided to exploit the situation ramp up mail-in balloting in blue counties in swing states. So they really targeted, you know, Philadelphia in Pennsylvania or Atlanta in Georgia, Maricopa County in Arizona, to elevate the number of votes they could squeeze out for Biden by embedding left-wing activists into the governmental system. You know, people understand that billionaires spend money on politics, but this was the takeover of government election offices. And so, in Virginia, I remember I got like, I can't remember the name of the group that we got a mailer from, but it was very suspicious. And it turned out it was one of these left wing groups. But in some states, they were allowed to embed into these election offices. And now it's being made illegal in many states. Explicitly, there's some question about the legality of it in 2020. Uh, who is Mark Elias and what role did he play in, in past elections? So I became familiar with Mark Elias when he finally admitted to the Washington Post in 2017 that he had been the guy who wrote the check for the dossier that had caused so much trouble for Donald Trump. It turned out that that was a Democrat-run operation and that Mark Elias had run that operation, hiring people to make up stories about Donald Trump in order to um, make it seem that he was not the legitimate president, that he was colluding with Russia. His partner, uh, Sussman, was just indicted by John Durham, who's running the probe into that Russia conspiracy theory that Democrats paid for and executed. But what I found interesting for the purposes of Rigged is that he's also the guy who ran the Democrats' operation to change hundreds of laws and processes across the country to enable this chaotic surge of 
flooding the system with mail-in ba- tens of millions of mail-in ballots at the same time that scrutiny of those ballots was seriously uh, restricted. That was his operation. And I thought, wow, that's pretty amazing that the same guy to cause a mess in 2016 with the lie that Donald Trump was a uh, Russian agent was the exact same guy to run the 2020 operation to create chaos and confusion in our mail-in ballot, in our balloting system. Uh, Molly, where were the local Republican parties who were supposed to be watching over these elections when, when all this was developing in 2020? So... One of the things that made the Zuckerberg initiative so effective is that it was billed as nonpartisan. Both Republican and Democrat counties could apply for grants from these groups that Zuckerberg funded. They were ostensibly to help with purchasing personal protective equipment for for, um, election day workers. And so people applied and Republican counties would apply and Democrat counties would apply. And so it did seem that Democrat counties were getting the most of the funding, but they were also the bigger counties. And so there was a little bit of hullabaloo about it, but not much. Well, it turned out after the fact that it was not bipartisan at all. It 92% of the funding went to overwhelmingly Democrat counties. They targeted the funding in Democrat counties in swing states. And they're now getting a handle on just how partisan the effects were. A team of researchers in Texas looked into the funding there which was almost more experimental given that given that Texas was pretty solidly Republican in 2020, but is a main target for Democrats going forward. And they ran an op- they they funded these Democrat counties or or slightly swing counties in Texas and were able to get 200,000 additional votes for Biden than if they hadn't. They did a Bayesian analysis to be able to identify the actual role of the funding, and people are also doing research which shows that in the much more narrow margins that we saw in Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Wisconsin, the Zuckerberg funding was out in huge effect. In Pennsylvania, Zuckerberg funded Philadelphia with $10 million. A Republican county just down the road got 5000 So technically bipartisan, but not really, because all the funding was going to drive up votes in heavily populated blue areas. Uh, I mean, it sounds like Molly, that the Democratic machine is so far more sophisticated, canny, uh, adventuresome than the than the Republican voting machines. They're much more effective. They're much savvier. And partially, you know, one of the things that I found fascinating when I was researching was talking to Republicans at the Republican National Committee, and they kept referencing this consent decree out of New Jersey from the early 1980s. And it turned out that for 40 years or nearly 40 years, Republicans were barred by law from being able to participate in election day uh, oversight. They had done something in, in a gubernatorial election in New Jersey in 1981. They end up signing a consent decree to limit their election day oversight, and it just keeps getting extended and extended and extended by this left-wing activist judge who retires but takes senior status just so he can keep the Republican National Committee under this order to prevent Election Day oversight. It literally takes his death for them to get out from underneath it. And it was so sensitive that in 2016, 
Vanity Fair reported that Sean Spicer was on a certain floor of Trump Tower on election night in 2016. And that almost led to the continuation of this consent decree banning Republicans from participation in election day activities, you know, for for another few years. It's like Republicans were having to run elections with both hands tied behind their back while Democrats were free to organize and, and, and get people out there monitoring voting and all sorts of things. So they are behind. Some of that is related to systematic advantages that Democrats have had for literally decades. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. Big question, Uh, Molly. We turn to Chapter 3. How did the arrival of COVID uh, shape this Democrat advantage in the elections? There were two major ways that COVID helped Democrats. For one thing, some somewhat implausibly, Donald Trump came out of the previous three years of his term flying high. You know, he survived an impeachment. Only Mitt Romney fell for that. He, the economy was doing well, particularly with wage and job increases for uh, poor and minority groups. Peace was breaking out all over. You know, the prediction had been that Donald Trump was going to get everybody into World War III, and instead it was just peace breaking out. And so he seemed to have a very, he was the odds on favorite, I would say, to, to win re-election. COVID tanks the economy, and also his management of it gives the media a day-in, day-out way to attack him. But it also enabled all these changes and flooding the zone with mail-in ballots, because even though Democrats had wanted these changes for years, people were much more amenable to those changes because of this once-in-a-lifetime crisis of the global pandemic. What did Stacey Abrams do in Georgia? Stacey Abrams? You mean the current governor of Georgia, Stacey Abrams? Just kidding. Yes, yes. Um, So she is actually a very key figure in this operation, although sometimes she gets credit for what is is an entire Democratic Party operation. She wants in Georgia to have greater mail-in balloting, lower scrutiny for ballots if votes are technically illegal. So, for instance, in Georgia, if you move from one county to another county, you have to re-register or else you're an illegal voter. She wants to do away with things like caring about whether people are who they say they are, whether they live where they say they do. And she runs campaigns to drastically expand um, voter registration to keep people from being removed from voter rolls, even after they've moved. You know, one of the problems with voter registration is that people register to vote, but then they, like 10% of the country moves every year. And that when they move, they should re-register. If they don't, what do they do with the names on those lists? Well, this becomes an issue because in Georgia, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who commits a number of errors throughout the process, one of the things he decides to do is send mail-in ballot applications to every name that's listed on these voter rolls. And he doesn't even do it in a way where the, the 
ballot application will come back if it's undeliverable. So all of these changes that Stacey Abrams makes creates greater chaos, less scrutiny, and she's one of the key figures involved in the Georgia takeover. Uh, next phenomenon that affected the election, the chapter four, Summer of Violence. How did the riots, the looting, the marches contribute to the rigging of the election? Well, one of the ways in which Donald Trump particularly posed a threat to the establishment is that he was not as able to be marginalized in the normal way that they marginalize Republican voices, which is to say he's racist. So they would say he was racist, but then he would not just continue with his policy. He would double down. It didn't seem to have the normal effect. And then even more, his policies were showing themselves to be very well received by black men in particular. And Democrats and other establishment figures started to get very nervous about what would happen if Democrats didn't have a stranglehold on black voters. And so into this context, we get the summer of rage and violence where riots break out all over the country, attacks on the White House a federal courthouse in Portland, police precincts, businesses are being raised and burned to the ground, dozens of people are killed, uh, defunding of police. And this unrest, which takes place across the country, is not met with much pushback, in part because Donald Trump does try to do a little bit, and he's immediately renounced by not just the media and other Democrat activists, but even some Republicans like Mitt Romney and Ben Sass. And so it's this combination of great unrest, which people don't like as voters, but also an inability to squash that unrest, which also people don't like. And it ends up being a great case for Joe Biden. Vote for Joe Biden. The riots will stop and everything will go back to normal. And it is months later that Molly Ball has an article in Time magazine in which she reveals that the cabal of people who orchestrated the rigging of the election also had control over the rioters, which I thought was the most interesting part of her article. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where was Joe Biden all this time during the campaign, during that summer? He, he, we didn't see much of him, did we? Yeah, it was, a, it was a fascinating election in our campaign in that Donald Trump does well when he's in front of audiences. It's how he tests messages. It's how he's able to break through some of the opposition from establishment figures. But Joe Biden benefits, and he can't do that during COVID, Joe Biden benefits from this exact same dynamic. When he's out in front of voters, people don't actually like him. People would sense that there wasn't much enthusiasm for him. He pretty much just stays at home and lets the media run his campaign. They do an excellent job throughout the summer. They attack his opponent every day. They make his policies and proposals such as they were sound great. And he has a easiest, the easiest presidential campaign in modern history. Uh, Molly, when we look at the media, which is part of this, very much a part of this process, uh, at what point did journalists and editors start accepting anonymous sources at face value, not even getting corroboration for, for what was being said by people? I mean, did has this been just in the last few years or is this a longer? I mean, okay. I mean, honestly, I would say it's Deep Throat and uh, the Watergate coverage where 
what should have been conveyed to readers was the conflicted nature of the sourcing for that story. And it wasn't, and then it just sort of gets worse and worse. And then by 2016, well, really by 2017, reporters have already decided in August of 2016 that they no longer will be held to even pretending that they have any norms or, or standards or approach toward objectivity. They just decide the only thing that matters is is preventing Donald Trump from being elected. And then when he is elected, it's preventing his effective governance or prevent, preventing his reelection. And so that's when the anonymous sources just go even crazier and you know, they're allowed to just make things up that we can tell aren't true. And it seems no barrier to the story being pushed. Uh, you actually display that quite well with the debates, uh, the way the moderators like Chris Wallace uh, behaved. You know, I saw that, why? Why would the Trump campaign agree to a clearly hostile moderator? It's not just the Trump campaign. It's all Republicans who are behaving this way. It's more surprising with the Trump campaign because they actually do understand that, that the press are the unaccountable political opponent that they have. But, I mean, just a couple of weeks ago in the Virginia GOP, they had Chuck Todd, quote unquote, moderate a debate. Chuck Todd is a raised conspiracy theorist. He pushed the Russia collusion conspiracy theory for years. Every day he would attack people who were skeptical of it. And his reward is that he gets to quote unquote moderate a debate between a co-partisan and a Republican. I mean, that's just insane. But the Trump, I think, thinks that he, well, for one thing, he thinks that Chris Wallace will be harder on Biden because he has this idea that because Joe Biden didn't know who Chris Wallace was once on television, that Chris will be um, offended by it. And he had another reason why he thought it might not be so bad. But uh, I think the real problem with that debate for Trump is, I mean, in my view, I think he, and he did not deny this is how I'll say it. He didn't admit to this, but I think he was already sick with COVID and he just wasn't operating at the level he needed to be, and he was belligerent, and it didn't work well. What happened in the Kamala Harris-Mike Pence debate? So Mike Pence's superpower, I think, is debating people. Kamala Harris is actually pretty good, too, particularly at the surface level. As a former prosecutor, district attorney, she has a good tenacious spirit. She comes out hard on the... um, issue of COVID management, but Mike Pence is just pretty amazing when it comes to the debate stage. He knows what he believes. He has no problem articulating it. He has a very effective debate performance, which I think the proof that it was effective is that immediately after it was over, the media tried to say that he had mansplained or you know taken up too much time versus Kamala, but it turned out she had spoken, she had spoken longer than he had, so that talking point went away. Uh, after the election, we had the attempts to make challenges uh, to the results, the, the, uh, the Rudy Giuliani and, and others trying to spearhead that. What, first of all, maybe I should ask, uh, you talk about mistakes that Rudy Giuliani made in, in that process. What, what were those? So I'm, that's probably the area where I'm most critical of how things were handled. And I just want to first take a step back and say that the Trump campaign had created multiple paths to victory that, that looked at 
different results in 17 states. And they built up a really good legal operation in each of those 17 states. But 17 states is a lot to manage. And so they had national law firms, state-based law firms, city-based uh, attorneys, and it was too much. So election, but they didn't know how these changes to election laws would play out. They predicted incorrectly which states would be a problem. And so as things are happening in the chaos after the election, they have some good cases working their way through. In Pennsylvania, they have an excellent case that relates to how in one county, like a Democrat county, they would let votes through that should have been barred. But in a Republican county, maybe one right next door, they would follow the letter of the law, thereby uh, putting those ballots away and not counting them. And this is the same issue we saw in Bush v. Gore in 2000, this disparate impact and needing clarification about how, you know, which ballots to count and which ones not to count. And as the legal situation deteriorates nationally, Rudy Giuliani is brought in and he tries to turn that case into a fraud case. It was not a fraud case. I think people use the term fraud to talk about any problems with election, but fraud is a very specific issue. And this case did not have to do with fraud. So when he moves it to that, the judge is annoyed and disgusted and, you know, and not just doesn't just um, rule against it. It has this effect of many other cases seeming less strong, judges not wanting to get involved, attorneys not wanting to get involved in an operation that's not being well run. And it just has this cascading effect. Yeah, you know, uh, Congressman Bob Barr, he told me uh, uh, not long after the election when I asked him, is in Georgia, the, the 1990s <laughs> congressman. I said, are, are, these, are the judges going to listen? He says, no. I said, why not? He says, they're going to say, you're coming to us now? You guys saw this coming six months ago, and you did nothing about it, and now you're expecting the judges to take care of it. What do you think of that argument? I, I think in the... the in general, judges don't like getting involved, but I think that's a little unfair in that there were plenty of cases that people were bringing before the election, and they were either told, so for instance, there were some cases brought against this Zuckerberg funding, and the judges would say, there's no indication this is partisan. Well, it turned out to be very partisan. Or they would say, well, we can't know how this would affect things, so it's hard to see that where the harm has been. But then once they would revisit the case after the election, they would say, well, now it's moot because the election has already happened. You get a bunch of U.S. Supreme Court justices, uh, Alito, Thomas, Kavanaugh, all criticizing the failure of courts to provide clarity in these cases, or sometimes overstepping their actual authority. You know, state legislatures are the ones who handle changes to processes. But in some places like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, the, these biased Supreme Court instituted changes that, that were very relevant to the election, and not just the presidential election, but you know, various other races at the state federal level. And so courts did not shine in glory either. I mean, there's a lot of failure to go around. And in one case, the Supreme Court doesn't, uh, doesn't take up an issue because it wouldn't have had an effect on the election. And I think it's Thomas who says that's precisely why we should settle this issue, because this isn't going to be the last election we have in this country. We need to settle you know, what the rules are one way or the other. And I heard a lot of Republicans say this too. They do tend to be rule followers, but if they are allowed to do things that they consider unethical, they want to know so that they can start doing them. You know, it's like performance enhancing drugs. You you might not believe in them, but if you're in a in a league that uses them, you know, maybe you use them if it's if it's encouraged or if it's what you're competing against. The book is rigged. 
how the media, big tech, and the Democrats seized our elections. Molly Hemingway, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.